Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 40. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his intentions are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promise good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Kinsey. <clears throat> what all of you were thinking moments ago when John was talking about his team, the Cincinnati Bengals, is that historically many teams have beat them. <laughs> he thinks he can just boast in it now because they're decent, right? Uh, anyway, hey, my name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors, and I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, if this, if you're, this is your first time, or if you're first time back in a while, um, it's a privilege to get to open God's Word with you today. And if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, I'm especially privileged to share this moment with you. As a church, we want to be the kind of place where you can bring your doubts, bring your questions, uh, bring the things that even that you, you don't like about what Christians believe. Uh, we're okay with that. Jesus is a big boy and he can handle himself and we want to stand with him and, and just have processing what, what it looks like to, to take up Jesus in the world and his claims. And so I'm really glad that you're here today. Um, as, as we sort of move into the sermon, I just want to say, sort of up top, I was going over my notes last night, and I was praying, and I think what's true every Sunday, I felt in a unique way last night, there, every Sunday there's an assignment, you know, to open God's word and to make plain its meaning and application for us. Uh, but last night, I was just sort of struck with a unique sense of assignment today, um, just an expectation that God really wanted to meet us by his word today. That's, again, that's true every Sunday. I was just particularly aware of that last night. And so I'm excited to open this text today. And I would just invite you, if you're here and you're thinking um, you don't know what to expect with the sermon, I would just ask that you would rise your level of expectation and meet me with, with sort of the firm belief that God will meet us with his open word. Amen? And so if you would please pray with me, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pray for us as we open, open this passage. God's Psalm, Psalm 83 opens with the words, 
Do not be silent. Don't hold your peace, but speak, O God. And uh, I want to open even my request today with that scripture. We ask today, God, that you would not be silent, that you wouldn't hold your peace, and that you would speak. And God, I believe that that's always happening. I believe that that's always true. But I ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up whatever obstacle there would be in the way of us actually hearing your voice today. And so I pray where there's unbelief in the room that you would meet it with fresh faith. I pray where there's doubts or skepticism, God, that you would meet it with the honesty of your spirit. And I pray for every other way that we're coming into this moment. God, I I just ask, I ask for a fresh encounter with your living presence, that you would lift our eyes to your son Jesus and that you would anchor us with the peace that comes from your spirit. And I offer this prayer with confidence in the strong name of Jesus, our King, and we said together, amen, amen. Hey, one of the things I love about preaching through books of the Bible, uh, and that's sort of our steady diet here at Frontline Church, just taking Old Testament and New and systematically working through it. One of the things I love about preaching through books of the Bible is that we get to take God's voice, we get to take God's word at its own cadence and at its own progression. And what I mean by that is that we don't stand up here and choose the topic of the day. Uh, We don't stand up here and choose the progression or the sequence of the topics of any given day. We let God do that, right? We let, by just sort of working through his word, whatever is the next passage in line, that's the topic we'll take up. And we sort of wait with God in terms of the progression of the topics that get taken up. And the perfect example of this is our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. Some have called this book like an open letter Q&A between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth. And it feels a lot like this. So we're just in seven chapters, and here's what we've taken up this far, just as a refresh. We've taken up issues of church division, spiritual entitlement, issues of church discipline over gross sexual immorality. There was a sermon there in the middle in chapter six on lawsuits in the church, everyone's favorite topic. We talked about a biblical vision for our bodies and sexuality, sexual intimacy within marriage, divorce and remarriage, and last week, Christian contentment in any circumstance. I mean, that, that's, that's, light. that's a light walk in the park, isn't it, right? That's just, that's just been a day's journey uh, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we take up the issue of the topic of singleness. Singleness. There were some of the church in Corinth who were wondering whether or not it was okay to be married, wondering whether or not they should even get married. There were others who didn't want to get married, and there was a third minority in the church then that had lost a spouse and they were wondering about getting remarried. And all of these are relevant questions for them then and for us now. And if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard some teaching on singleness that may or may not have been helpful, (laughs) that may or may not have, have been edifying to you. I've personally heard lots of bad teaching on singleness. And singleness is an especially important conversation for the church to take up because of the times that we live in. For some, singleness is to be desired over marriage uh, because it's constantly being redefined. Marriage is increasingly being viewed in our day as a failed institution, redefined all the time. Is it really even worth my energy? Some want no part of marriage because they witnessed bad marriages or failed marriages growing up, and I don't want any part of that collateral damage. Some would just rather keep their freedom and Uh, enjoy having options opened. 
But for others, especially in, in Oklahoma, there's still a strong desire to be married among single people. Marriage is to be desired over singleness, and singleness is largely viewed as something to only be tolerated. I'll deal with it as long as I have to until I can move on from it. Maybe that's out of a fear of lifelong loneliness or move on from it, out of a desire to have romantic fulfillment. There are some who are single in the church that have been made to feel um, when singleness is prolonged or beyond of an age where you think someone ought to be married, that age sort of moves for all kinds of people, that somehow to still be single is a failure or it's second rate. And when singleness is unwanted, when singleness is prolonged, it can cause confusion, it can cause despair, it can cause heartache. And so how should Christians think about singleness? How should Christians think about the prospect of marriage? I realize that what we're going to talk about today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is going to sound crazy to you. It's going to sound crazy. And maybe to you it is. But here's what I would say. If what we're talking about today is true and we confess it is, then it's not crazy and it actually demands an invitation from your life. It demands that you consider not just what we're talking about today, but all the claims of Jesus and we're open to those conversations. But this is everything to do with what the passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is, is talking about. And I want you to notice that where this passage falls in the flow of the book and what it's attached to in the larger conversation happening in chapter 7 around marriage and sexuality, Paul clearly intended for the entire church to hear what he has to say here, to be applied by everybody. And so here's what I mean. The above section, the beginning of the chapter on sex and marriage he intended to be heard by all the single people in the church. He intended for them to hear it, for them to have an understanding of its application. And every way that he meant for single people to hear about marriage and sex within marriage, he also intends for the married people in the church to hear about singleness so that we can advocate for one another. The idea is that we know how to understand God's word and God's place and God's purpose for wherever it is that we find ourselves and advocating for our brothers and sisters. And so we'll jump into it. I've got two parts for how we'll navigate this time. And I've got to admit from the top here that the titles I've given to our structure are probably the least creative, least compelling titles I've given to a sermon structure. Uh, but I think it's at least clear. So here, here we'll, I'll give it to you and we'll, we'll get to work. We'll do it first with a biblical framework and a burden for singleness. And then secondly, instruction to those who are single. I told you, not creative at all, but absolutely clear. A burden and a framework and then instruction, and so we'll get to work. As we jump into this passage, Paul's going to talk about singleness in a way that's going to be hard to find if found at all in any popular level teaching on singleness and dating. Paul would not be invited to singles conferences across America, right? Like his books aren't getting published. Uh, no one wants to read what Paul has to say. He's going to talk in a pretty unique way. He's going to give us a framework that's bigger than singleness. I want you to hear that. What he's about to say is actually bigger than singleness, but it's applied to singleness, but also applies to every person in the room, regardless of where you find yourself. And so pick up with me in verse 25. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So a couple of interesting things Paul says here from the opening verse. He talks about this group called the betrothed. There's some debate as to how that word is accurately translated from the original Greek. But largely what we need to know is that it covers those who are unmarried. It's not just 
the engaged, who you typically might think of in terms of betrothal, it's largely covering anyone who's unmarried, whether single or engaged. And it's a different category than the widows who are mentioned later in the passage. And so Paul says, concerning these betrothed, the second interesting thing he says in 25, is he says, I have no command. I have no command from the Lord. Now, there's some who would just write Paul off here and go, hey, if you don't have a command, if this isn't a binding thing, then why am I listening to your advice, right? I can just... This isn't the Bible speaking authoritatively. But what's actually Paul is saying is, I have no command, meaning the Lord Jesus didn't have a teaching on this. I don't have a precedent in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so I don't have a command from the Lord per se, but what I'm going to do is take what we do have from Jesus and apply it to this topic. Broadly, what we do have from Jesus and apply it to this topic. So I'm going to give you some very thoughtful apostolic advice. Now, here's what's interesting about this. What Paul thought was advice when he was writing this letter to the church at Corinth, what he thought was in the moment, in his bedroom, or wherever he was, penning this letter, what he thought of as advice, the Holy Spirit superintended and saw fit to include it in Holy Scripture. So in Paul's mind, what was advice, the Holy Spirit said, that's God's authoritative word applicable to the church. And so pick up with me in verse 26, and he gives us the window in his particular setting. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. In view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. So Paul speaks of a, a distress, a suffering, something that was happening in Corinth at the time of the writing of this letter. Referencing something specific, we're not exactly sure what it is. Scholars like to debate what was going on there. But here's the point for you and me. There was something happening at the time Paul was writing that caused him pause from just endorsing people to run off into marriage. There was something going on that was like, hey, right now may not be the best time to consider running off into marriage. So he's speaking in a particular historical context. It's worth, worth mentioning because it's there in the passage plainly. But what Paul's about to say, the historical context is not the driving factor of how he's going to speak. The, the historical context of the distress is simply the thing that highlights for him how he wants to apply what he's about to say. And that is, I want us to have eager expectation for the return of Jesus. And that's where he goes in the next verses. But his resolve, because of the present distress, his sort of application is to go back to the rule of life that we had last week. Wherever you find yourself, wherever, whatever situation you're in, the Lord has assigned that to you. Whether married or single, the Lord has assigned that to you. Be faithful where you are. And so he gets more to the point in 27. He says, are you bound to a wife? Well, don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. So that's plain enough from a clear reading. If you're married, stay that way. If you're single, I would encourage you not to see that as a problem to be solved, but remain where you are. And if, you're if, if you do get married, that's fine and good, but I don't want you to think of marriage as the thing that will solve all your problems, and all the married people said, amen. Amen. So what Paul says feels a bit shocking to us in our moment. It's not the way we tend to think about marriage and singleness. We tend to see that as like a graduation or a status of arrival. 
a desired destination. But he's actually encouraging people to remain single. This would have been shocking in their moment, as much as it's shocking to us, and especially shocking coming from a Jewish man. In his day, to be an adult with no spouse or no children was to have little or no dignity or worth or value in society. And yet Paul here is remaining people, encouraging people to remain single, even back up in verse seven, calling singleness a gift. And so he realizes that he said something shocking both to them then and to us now. And so much so that in verse 29, he basically says, hey, let me, let me explain what I mean here. Pick up in 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And let those who mourn as though they were not. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world to live as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Because the present form of this world is passing away. Okay, so lean in with me here. This section, what Paul says in 29 to 31, inside of this whole teaching on singleness is the section that's so often missed, it's so often bypassed in our own thinking about singleness and marriage, but for sure in popular level writings and books on the topic. What Paul does here is he essentially pulls back the curtain. And it's as though he says, here's what I've got, here's what you've got to see. Here's what I need you to see. The present time The appointed time is short. And what he's referring to there is the return of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the decisive redemptive event for God to bring history to its final close, right? Because that's happened, the appointed time, the the, the fixed time of Christ's return is now short. Christians, since the resurrection of Jesus, have expected that Jesus could return at any moment. Since the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have gathered on the Lord's Day like we're doing, and they've had the full expectation that 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 pastor might not finish his sermon. Jesus might come back. And so he's saying the appointed time has grown short, and the present form of this world is passing away. It's as though he's saying, I realize that we're talking about singleness, but here's what I need you to consider. Not just about singleness, but about any topic as a Christian. So many of you would just like me, claim to know and to believe Jesus is going to return someday. We would claim to know that and to believe that. But we rarely take that serious enough to apply it to the way that we make decisions and handle relationships. We normally just go, well, these are the decisions I'm making, and these are the relationships that I have, the relationships that I want, and oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. And Paul's saying, I want you to reverse that. The return of Jesus is not a nice thought or a nice benefit out there, but it's not the present reality of how you deal with your life. He's saying, no, 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 no. It is the feature of the Christian life. It is the thing that we build everything on. The the death and resurrection of Jesus and his future return is how we deal with all of life and how we understand everything in our relationships. It is the most pressing present reality for your life and mine. He's talking about a way of stewarding your life and making decisions as though Jesus could come back at any moment. And I just wonder for a second, download this with me. I just wonder for a second, what would change about your life if you really believed that? What would change about the way that you handle relationships, your finances? What would change about the way you handle your your anxieties if you really believed Jesus could return? He's promised to return. 
at any moment. What passions, here's a second level of the question, what passions and what anxieties might lose their power if you made your passions and your anxieties to face the drowning reality of the presence of the resurrected Jesus? What power might your anxieties and passions lose? I think porn and lust would lose a lot of power if it were made to face the present reality of the resurrected Jesus. I think greed and the feeling as though you need to buy the next thing that you think will make you happy would lose a lot of power if it were made to face the drowning reality of the resurrected Jesus. I think dishonesty and the thought that you could lie to get ahead would lose power in light of the coming of Christ. We could keep writing down the list, gossip. You see how it's applied to singleness, but it's bigger than singleness. And I believe that what Paul's letting us in on here is actually the interpretive grid through which he said everything in chapter seven. This is why he's talked about marriage and sex within marriage the way he has, divorce and remarriage, and now singleness and considering marriage. He's saying, you guys, outside, outside of the return of Jesus to finally bring the kingdom of God, every attempt you, you have to find ultimate fulfillment in your circumstances is like what the writer of Ecclesiastes calls chasing smoke. Every attempt you and I put out there to find ultimate fulfillment in our circumstances is like grabbing after smoke. As soon as you feel like you have it, it's gone. And this is why Paul says in 29, so from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. He's not speaking literally when he says this, and we know that because he just told us, if you have a wife, stay married. He's speaking rhetorically to make a point. And the point is, or I should say the point is not, you know what, guys? Jesus is coming back, so let's withdraw, let's disengage, let's, co- let's collect guns and ammo and collect canned goods. Like, that, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying, though, is, hey, guys, Jesus is coming back. That much is true. That much we know. So here's his point. I want you to live your life right now. I want you to live your life so engaged in this present world. Don't disengage. I want you to engage right now in the fullness of this present life with wherever you are entirely, with everything God's given to you. Engage. Do it. But I want you to engage in this world so marked, so defined, so etched by a future eternity with Jesus that it frees you from being pulled in a thousand different directions that this world tells you that you need if you're going to be happy. Engage in this world. Do your job. Do you, all the relationships that you have. Uh, carry out your hobbies. Live this present life fully engaged, but do so marked by eternity with Jesus that actually frees you up from being pulled in a thousand different directions of things that are, you're told will satisfy you but can't. Isn't it true that every vision of the satisfied life that is offered to us by the world overpromises and underdelivers. Isn't that true? Every vision of like, you gotta have this, you gotta do that, this is what you need to be happy, overpromises and underdelivers. And we know this by experience. Your regrets prove that's true. Things that you've done, that I've done, that we thought we needed to do if we were gonna be happy, on the other side of it, all we're left with is regret that we wasted the time. 
It's not just regrets. Your debt ledger, and so does mine, proves this. Things that you thought you needed to buy and to have in order to be happy, and yet you are as you are, and you have the debt to now pay for it. So when you apply this back to singleness, here's the idea. That you would see your singleness and you would see the prospect of marriage not as something primarily to be pursued for ultimate happiness, but you would see singleness and the prospect of marriage as primarily in the light of eternity with Jesus. And so this is not Paul in any way putting down marriage. Paul is pro-marriage. This is the same Paul that gave us Ephesians chapter 5, the most beautiful download in Scripture on what marriage is and its meaning. So he's not against marriage, but he's, he's wanting us to see both singleness and marriage in light of the coming kingdom of Jesus so that the way that we understand being satisfied in this life is not in terms of a relationship. We don't understand being satisfied in terms of circumstances. We understand it in terms of Jesus. That's distinctly Christian. Let, let me sort of put it street level like this. If you're a Christian and you're single... You have Jesus, but what you're really shooting for in life is a spouse. Or what you're really, what you're, you have Jesus, but what you're really after is finding the one. Then let me tell you what will likely happen. If you have Jesus, but what you're really after is something else, here's what will happen. Very likely, you will wind up a married Christian, but unsatisfied in both your spouse and in Jesus. You see that? The rule applies broadly. If you have Jesus, but what you're really after is something else, something other than Jesus. I've got Jesus, but he's just a nice side piece. What I'm really after is this career, or you, you fill in the blank. I'm after something else. Then what will end up happening is that you'll consistently miss both. Jesus and whatever the thing is. And the reason is, is because the thing that you're after won't satisfy you like you thought it would, because it can't, by definition. And you can't enjoy that thing because you pushed Jesus to the margin, and you can't enjoy Jesus because you've pushed him to the margin. If you have Jesus, but you want something else, you'll consistently miss both. And he's applying that here to marriage. I told you Paul doesn't talk like any popular level person on this topic, does he? But notice why he's talking this way. Pick up in verse 32. He says, guys... I want you to be free from anxieties. I want, it's not, it was, what's amazing about Paul saying that is as though he can free you from your anxieties. Like just by reading him, you're like, oh, thank you so much, Paul. Anxiety gone. He knows he can't free you from anxieties, but what he's trying to get at is I want you to be anxious about the right stuff. We spend so much of our anxieties on stuff that doesn't take us anywhere. Can you be anxious about the Lord, about his return, about stewarding your life under the coming of Jesus? Notice in verse 35, he says, this is like a good dad. He says, I say this for your own benefit. Thanks, dad. I say this for your own benefit. I don't want to lay any restraint on you. I'm not a killjoy. I'm not a, uh, an angry grandpa. But I'm saying this to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to Jesus. He wants the best thing for us. And so in the short time we have left, I want to end with just simple instruction to single people. And he gives us three things. Two are pretty straightforward and one drives at the heart. So let's do the two and then get to the one. 
And the first is this, marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Straight up, period to the end of the sentence. Marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Paul does something really special for the church in this passage. He sets up marriage and he sets up singleness and he dignifies both of them to the same degree. One isn't placed over the other, one isn't placed under the other. Here's the point, it's a gift. Wherever you are, it's a gift. But don't mistake the gift for God. Don't mistake the gift for God. Marriage is a good gift, but it's a bad God. Marriage is a really good gift. Those of you who are married know this, but it's a really bad God. What do you mean, Chad? I mean, marriage doesn't last forever. By definition, bad God. It can't hold you, it can't sustain you. Good gift, bad God. Even in your vows you say this, at death do we part. You recognize it's temporary. Even if it lasts 70 years, it's temporary. Marriage doesn't last forever, but attachment to Jesus lasts forever. Good gift, bad God. On the other side, singleness is a gift, but it's not an identity. Singleness is a gift. It's a good gift from God. We're gonna get to more on that in just a second, but it's not an identity. Don't mistake it for that. The most important thing about you is not your attractiveness or your thoughts about how not attractive you are. The most important thing about you isn't your availability. The most important thing about you is what Jesus says about you. That can only come from him. And at the end of this passage, Paul blesses those. After you want to see marriage this way, he says, or after you see marriage this way, if you still want to get married, he blesses it, both to widows and those who are single. But in 39, he gives this caveat. He says, you can get married only in the Lord, meaning only Christians. Christians, marry Christians. If you're dating Christians, date Christians. Don't do missionary dating, right? Well, the one I'm with is not a Christian, but like I have this passion and zeal to share Christ with them and they're gonna do the thing and it's gonna be amazing. We're gonna have a testimony and a marriage. Paul says, don't do that. That works like 1% of the time. And even then, it's, it's iffy, right? He says, only in the Lord. And here's just something that will blow your mind. We've said this from the pulpit multiple times. You tend to marry the people you date. Blow your mind with that. Wow. Thank you so much for that. So date wisely. Like date someone that you want to build a life with around a conviction that Christ is returning and this is not about us but about him. Here's the second thing. Honor God with your body. Do things meant for covenant inside of covenant, not outside. Honor God with your body. There's a strong word given in verse 36 that's often bypassed, and I want to read it. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, okay, Paul, we know what you're talking about. He says, and it has to be, then let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it's no sin. Okay, I want to be as clear and as honest as this passage is being for just a minute. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so if you're dating, or you're seriously dating, and you're finding it difficult to honor or to recognize healthy physical or sexual boundaries that would honor God, the command of this passage is repent. Turn from your sin 
and bring in Christian community to help you in your struggle with lust. The idea would be that you would seek to treat your boyfriend or your girlfriend with the kind of dignity and honor that's owing to an image bearer of the Most High God in a kind of way that you could shake the hand of the husband or wife in the future and look them in the eye and know that you left that person better off than you found them. That's the idea of this passage. You say, yeah, but we're gonna get married. Okay, fine, but you're not married now. And so live in a kind of way that you can have a clear conscience and look God in the eye, as it were, knowing that you treated him or her with dignity, owing of an image bearer of the Most High God. That's the idea. Now, if you're engaged, if you're engaged to be married, and like so many, like my wife and I were, she was in the first service, like my wife and I, in those moments, you find it difficult to keep your hands off of your fiance. Your struggle is understandable, but your sins are still serious. Your struggle is understandable. In fact, if you weren't struggling with that, I would say we probably should talk about some stuff, right? But your sins are still serious. And the command of this passage is repent of your sin and seek the help of your community. Jesus is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to form. And you're like, yeah, but it's just so hard to wait. Like, I get that. But listen, if anyone knows how hard it is to wait, it's Jesus. That man purchased his bride, the church, with his own blood 2,000 years ago, and he's still not yet united to us in the way he intends to be on the great day. He knows what it is to wait. Jesus knows. And maybe just to speak personally here for a second. My wife and I have been married for 16 years. And there's several things that I would do differently if I could get some of these things over. And I'll just say it this way, with her permission from the first service. There's not a single, there's not a single boundary that we crossed that gained us anything in our marriage. Not a single one. Not a single boundary we crossed before we were married that gave us more intimacy in marriage or gave us more delight in marriage or greater chemistry. There's, there's nothing gained by, by doing these things. The only thing that we cultivated by crossing boundaries before marriage is we cultivated shame. That's the only thing we cultivated. We didn't cultivate romance. We cultivated shame. The only thing now looking back 16 years later is that there's a period of our life where Jesus was not honored. That's all forgiven under his blood, but, but things to consider. And so I think there's real practical wisdom here. If you're engaged, don't take out a long engagement. That's just a crock pot of temptation. Let's just let temptation simmer for a while and see what happens. Like, that's good for your roast beef, bad for your marriage. (laughs) Right? Let's just see if we can hop in a, let's just see if we can hop in in a sleeping bag and not touch. Right? Hey, hey, don't don't take out, don't take out a, a long engagement. And I also think there's some wisdom here that for some of you who are like engaged but having trouble honoring Jesus with your bodies, I think there might be some wisdom here in moving up the wedding date. Yeah, but we've already booked the venue and the pat. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? Maybe it would be better to make the harder decision to honor Jesus now than continue in sin but to keep appearances. Because this won't be the last time you have to make a hard decision on obeying Jesus. Just set a pattern of like, we're going we're gonna to obey Jesus even when it's difficult. And you're like, hey, well, how do I know if that's us? 
Tap in the pastors of the church. Hey, we would love to process. We're going to shame you. We'll say me too, us too. But let's do this with honoring Jesus in mind. And we'll go to the mat to help you think about what a, what a healthy marriage and a healthy foundation for a marriage might look like. Hey, here's the last thing today. Devotion to Jesus is not a consolation prize. Devotion to Jesus is not a consolation prize. For some of you, you hear this passage about the unique opportunity for singles to be undivided in their devotion to Jesus and that singleness is a gift. And you hear all that and you go, hey, I wish I had a different gift. Can I exchange this gift, please? Thank, thank you for the gift, God. Different gift, please. Right? And please hear me on this. If you're struggling with your place as a single, it's good and right for you to give your desires to God. It's good and right for you to struggle with what you want and offer that to God. But I want you to hear devotion to Jesus, the unique opportunity for singles from this passage that Paul proclaims is this unique opportunity to have undivided devotion to Jesus. That's not a consolation prize. As though God were to say, you know what? I haven't given you a spouse, but you get me. Isn't that cool? You get me. As though God were a consolation prize. God's giving you himself. And listen, undivided devotion to Jesus is not just the prize for single people in their moment. Undivided devotion to Jesus is the prize, whether you're married or single, and it's where every Christian is headed. If you're single in our church right now, I want you to please hear me as clearly as you can as I finish today. When you're faithful in your singleness, when you're faithful to Jesus in your singleness, you have a unique and special prophetic ministry to the church and to the watching world that married people don't have. You have a unique ministry, prophetic witness to the church and to the world that married people don't have. You say, what do you mean? You get to proclaim in your faithfulness to Jesus as a single person, you get to proclaim to the watching world and to the church, Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's better. He holds me. He completes me. I don't need anything beyond him. If he's all I have, I have more than enough. And the reason that that's a prophetic ministry is you realize the confession that you give singles of the enoughness of Jesus is the same confession that the rest of us will join in on on the great day before the throne. And we'll all say, you gave us a sneak preview of it, but now we'll just join you and say, Jesus is enough. You give us a sneak preview of what we're all going to do on the great day. You're important to the church. You're vital for the church. You're critical for all of us to have formation into what's most true. Jesus is enough. I'll finish with this. Jesus, in his life, he told these two stories. He told one story about this magnificent plot of land. He told another story about this priceless pearl. And in both stories, this plot of land and this pearl were found by a man. And the men, upon finding these things, they sold everything. They sold everything. They, they compromised their whole life in order to have this thing. They quit playing the field. They limited their options. They forsook it all to have that field and to have that pearl. And as much as both of those stories told that way sound like the American vision of marriage and ultimate happiness. It's actually about neither of those things. 
Those stories are about the kingdom of God and loving devotion to Jesus. He's the field. He's the pearl. He's the one worth selling everything for, compromising everything for, giving up everything for, just to have and take hold of him. Most of us compromise everything, give up everything just to have hold of someone else. He says these stories are actually about the kingdom of God and loving devotion to Jesus. Your marriage will one day fade away. Mine too. But devotion to Jesus lasts forever. Your singleness will one day fade away. But loving loving devotion to Jesus lasts forever. Your singleness is a gift from God and it's about devotion to Jesus. Your marriage is a gift from God and it's about loving devotion to Jesus. Our time is short, this present world is passing away and devotion to Jesus is the only thing that lasts. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to say, I want to voice this prayer, but I, but I invite, church, I invite, invite you to own it with me. Jesus, we want to say what every, what every person right now before your throne, what every angel before your throne, the worship service that was pre-existing before we even got to this room today, before your throne, we want to say now with every one of them, you are enough. And you are worth it. And you are better. And so God, I ask that now by the power of the Holy Spirit from what we've talked about today, would you empower the ministry of your word to form in us every place of a more simple and pure devotion to Jesus that would meet us and form us in our marriages or in our singleness. Jesus, you are enough. You are better. And I pray that you administer in this room to places of heartache, minister in this room to places of confusion. And I also pray that you administer in this room to places of misplaced priorities that we could return back to Jesus. And I offer this prayer in his name. Amen.